0: This is The Guardian. Just a warning, some of the language in this podcast may not be suitable for younger ears. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors.
1: Here's a cool fact.
0: That was the sound of me taking my fish fingers out of the oven. Okay, I have to tell you, we were meant to be recording this podcast in my kitchen. But after months and months of work, it's still absolutely full of builders. In fact, I think they've moved in now. And so my colleague, Nicole, has kindly offered up hers. And to say thank you, I'm going to be making us a luxurious lunch It's a stack of fish fingers dipped in what I like to call squeezable sunshine salad cream with a side of bread and butter. Mm. We're going to scoff that very quickly before my guest Candice Carty-Williams gets here today. Candice is such an impressive writer. Her debut novel, Queenie, won her the top prize at the 2020 British Book Awards. The story is about the chaotic life of a woman in her 20s who's finding her way through some very terrible dates and first jobs. And I can tell just from the way that she writes, she's going to be somebody who's very, very interesting. What does she eat after a long day? ...behind a hot laptop. OK, i better not eat them all. That's the problem with fish fingers. Two or three are just not enough. Ah. Candice Carty-Williams, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you so much for having me. So, this isn't my kitchen... I wish it was. I wish I could pass it off as my kitchen. It's beautiful, isn't it?
2: It's a really nice kitchen. It's a really nice kitchen. I like all the plants.
0: We can pretend it's yours. Well, if they were dead, then you would know it was my kitchen. Each week, I get to try my guests' very favourite comfort food. And I think you've brought something with you today. Okay, are you ready? Unveil the snack.
2: I'll do it in order. So we have crumpets. (gasps) I love a crumpet. OK, good, I love start. a crumpet. On top of that, we have
0: butter. And then we have marmite. Do you love or hate? Love. I absolutely love marmite. And yet, I think you can tell a lot about a person by how thick they spread marmite because there's a fine line between acceptable and um, psychopath. I don't have a... Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? OK. <laughs> And then, on
2: top of that, oh. so we're not finished, there's one
0: last thing. A chunk of cheese. And I'm noticing it's a Cathedral City cheese.
2: i tell you what, as well, it's a small one because I can't get through a block of cheese. Because I'm such an immediate eater that if I open a block of cheese, then I just won't ever go back to it.
0: It's a baby cheese. It's a baby cheese. OK, right. OK.
2: Right, I'm going to do, do lots of hand washing. You
0: somebody who, you like to have
2: clean hands when you're working yeah clean hands for this everything. is my Jamaican grandmother in me and so 20 seconds obviously now there you go um which hasn't happened in my head but also the running water so it's big, oh no I'm so everywhere. you were
0: washing hands well before oh well, well before. before the
2: trend do you know what I was like this is awful obviously you know just having like a global pandemic is like a terrible thing but I was like everyone's got up with my standards of cleaning now which is great So, I've got the crumpets out now. I think that looks
0: really good. That's absolutely perfect. Thank it's you. soft, it's squishy, but it's still just, it's got colour. It's brown, it's slightly burned, and that's how it's meant to be.
2: Thank you very much.
0: The test that's is awesome going to be the to well. melt when it goes on. I mean, the butter, because
2: it's such a hot day, the butter is already melting as it goes on, but that's a good thing. Look at that. Beautiful. Okay, so I've got some now. I feel like that is a good amount. And then I'm gonna put the cheese on top of that. Why are you laughing? I don't why you're laughing. I don't even put it in the grill. I just have it like that. And then it's up to you as the eater to make sure you get enough
0: cheese in each mouthful. So the cheese is just put on top. And yeah. Uh, I mean, it reminds me of you know Trafalgar Square. Yeah. You know the plinth. Oh my God! Okay. You know, it feels like yes. you put some art on top of the fourth plinth. Yeah. When would you eat this?
2: Mm, I would eat this in the evening when maybe I haven't eaten all day because it's like my brain says, how can you get inside your mouth a really nice thing that's like going to give you everything you've wanted in the day? And then I move on to sweet, but I would really take my time with these. So it's not a writing snack? No, I can't eat when I'm writing. I don't eat anything because it's a distraction. Anything apart from water is a distraction but I listen to music pretty loudly. I listen to lots of grime and I I listen to lots of UK rap. I think I have to have like multiple streams of thought in my head at all time. Is this late at night? All the time. I hate writing in the daytime. So I'm usually
0: asleep until about 9pm. If we shared a flat, we'd just like never see each other. (laughs) Are you an early riser? Oh yeah. If I can be up at five o'clock oh my gosh I'll have my coffee and then I'll start and then I like to be in bed early we could literally never see each other at all let's talk about Queenie so I've got to say that the way you talk about dating and men in Queenie I found unfortunately very relatable I'm sorry so (laughs) Queenie is in her 20s And I also think that people in their 40s are still going through that chaos. I hate saying this to people because I think younger people think that this all goes away. It does not go away, the chaos of dating. (laughs) Um, When you're on a date and it's going very badly, do you think this will be useful? I'd I'd have to go on dates for that to apply. I think I'm not very good at dates. Someone told me that you're into astrology. Big time. Are you the kind of person that would refuse to go on a date with a specific star sign? Yes. Go on. Gemini.
2: Like Queenie, Gemini. But that's because I remember getting lectured on that by my family. They were like, you've got to stay away. And then my mum is a Gemini, but she's a Gemini woman. It's very different. But Gemini women are like fairies. And it's like, come ground yourselves, please. Like, this is the real world. You've got to get involved in it. And I think men are like that, but sort
0: of worse. I just want to go with someone who is cool. That's all I want. But I don't even know people who are cool. There's a definite cut-off point when dating, when you literally cannot put your primer and your foundation and your lipstick on one more time. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I don't have any more like, and do you have any
0: siblings? In me, I can't do it anymore. You do know that somebody is just going to be in your house before you know it, like leaving their pants and their shoes everywhere. <sighs> That's hard. <laughs> but like, well, if it is what it is. So much of what you write about is rooted in South London and I know that you've lived almost all your life there. Tell me about little you in South London. Oh,
2: um, I lived with my mum first in Croydon and I was quite chill. I remember my mum told me that when I was young, she took me to nursery and I walked in and I saw all the kids and I just went to the window and I just looked out the window and sighed because I didn't want to talk to anyone. And then I remember moving in with my grandparents. so I was like seven or eight. What was your household like? So my grandparents did have this big house. My granddad did work for London Underground. So he was like on night shift all the time. He worked very, very hard and bought this massive house. So were the people always like around? And then I had a cousin who would always come in and out. And then she'd take me out with her and, her, and like hang out with her and her friends. And then I had like four aunts and they had kids. So it would be always like someone was around. I was very rarely alone. I remember growing up in a house of, I think it was just like, it felt like a lot of offloading. Like people were always like, why are you so good at at like therapizing people? And I was like, because I've been doing it since I was like five years old. And like having these adults be like, oh, this has happened. And then like, he's left me. And I and then I've got the kids and he's not giving me any child support. And he'd been like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> when I was like six years
0: old. <laughs> yeah, this little kid, the psychiatrist is in residence.
2: Honestly, my nan, but my nan, she was like, oh, your nickname is Mother because you're like everyone's mum. And it was like, that's that's like almighty pressure for a child. And my nan was always there. My nan is like, I love her so much, called Elaine. And my middle name is her name. My mum, who also, who also I love, Um, She just didn't have a mum, really. And so my nan was my caregiver and the provider. And that was always through food. She cooked a lot of meat and rice. It's funny, she didn't, we're from Jamaica, but she didn't cook a lot of Jamaican food because she was always like the cholesterol. And so she would do lots of like stews, like very watery stews and rice. And so actually when I'm ill, weirdly the thing that settles my stomach is that sort of food. So I can have like a stomach bug and go to my nan's and then I eat like a big plate of rice and like some sort of lamb stew and I feel fantastic again. One thing though that my nan used to make that I always ask her for now. Like I'm always like are you going to make some saltfish fritters? It's really simple. It's like egg, flour, saltfish which is like salted cod and peppers and onions. And they just mix it all together and you just like fry it up. And she used to make them, and I would just, I could just stand next to her and just like eat them endlessly as they were like coming out of the pan, like burning my mouth. Tell me more about Elaine. What did you two used to do together? Watch Keeping Up Appearances and Catchphrase. Um, And I'd follow her to the shops. Like that was like the main stuff. But I just was obsessed with her and I still am. I just think she's the most amazing. I don't wanna cry. But she's the most amazing woman. She had five kids. She had the first when she was 14. And she's, she always told me she would have loved to have been a seamstress. She would have loved to have gone, gone and been involved in the arts. She would have loved, but she was like, but I couldn't because I had five kids. I, I didn't know what to do. But she's like, I love that you have done the things that I couldn't do.
0: So it feels like everything you're doing is about making her proud.
2: Uh, everything I do, I think, is about making my nan proud. And anything that happens, even if she doesn't understand it, I'm still really excited when I can go and tell her. So, like, when I was told that the BBC greenlit this TV show that I'm working on, Champion, she was the first person that I called. And I was told, like, you can't tell anyone. And I was like, yeah, no, no, I absolutely won't. And then I picked up the phone and I was like, hey, Nan, guess what? And she was like, oh her one thing that her one sticking point is me not having a baby and I called her the other day to ask her about some salmon I said all right thanks she said oh quick thing I said yeah she said when are you gonna have a baby I said <laughs> we spoke like yes we, uh we okay um and then I was like well not for a while because you know I'm like busy and I'm like doing stuff and I haven't really met anyone that I like I like yet and she was like right okay because you know like before I die because I just see, I just imagine your legs on a baby's legs. I said, all right, yeah, okay. And I was like, let me go and do the cooking now. And she was like, okay, one last thing. I said, what? She said, I don't want to be rude, but have you thought about a sperm donor? Wow. I said, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> not rude. I was like, I thought that maybe you would find it a problem if I wasn't, you know, like in a relationship. And she was like, no, you no, know, no. She said, because the men aren't saying anything these days, you know. And I was like, how do you know that? You don't, you've been with granddads for like 70 years. But she knows she knows she talks about all sorts she'll do a little sort of sometimes like a cheeky like have you got a dildo and i'll be like no i haven't but it's not a test she's just like she just wants to know this stuff she's cool did you read and write when you were a kid i wrote a diary lamenting so, oh god I was, I'm, I'm such an emotional person and sometimes you just you can't say it to everyone because everyone thinks you're mad so the levels of emotional that I am it's like just best to get it on the page like you don't want to call your friends up and just like talk to them about stuff and I'm always crying I cry like once a day I cry if I see someone eating a sandwich by themselves are they lonely I'll start crying it's that like I'm that sort of person and it's like no they're having a nice time I wouldn't mind doing a sandwich by myself but I've given this person a whole narrative and I'm upset but I'm upset by it Oh, that's
0: lovely though. It's lovely that you see these things.
2: Yeah, but it's like to your to detriment because it is like pretty exhausting. But as a child, so reading was my thing. Reading was my like big escape. I would read a book a day. I think my nan's books were Catherine Cook's and books, but I read those things. And then I think when I got to school and there was like a library, I was like, oh, so there's actually some stuff that I can read that isn't for people who are like in their forties. That's amazing. And so I read voraciously and I would like, I think at night most of the time, because I had to have like my lights off by like nine, I would pretend I had a stomachache and just go and sit in the bath and just read. What were you reading? Lots of Mary Blackman, lots of Judy Bloom. Um and Sue Townsend, who I just So Sue Townsend was an influence. It's the diaries. Sue Townsend, Bridget Jones, Adrian Mole, those I read those diaries I think like five times over. And every time a new one came out, I was like first in line. At W.H. Smith. I feel exactly the same about
0: Adrian Mole. It's why I've loved him for decades. What is it for you? Why do you love Adrian Mole? Do you know what? I think the poetry encapsulates why I love
2: him. He was the most earnest person. It's
0: poetry. Do you weep, Mrs. Thatcher? Do you weep?
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) But he was incredible. I think there was something about him that he didn't care what people thought. Mm -hmm. And that was what was amazing because I think just like growing up, because, you know, I'm a black woman, so I felt like I had eyes on me all the time, like you're too loud, you're too this, or too that. And so just seeing someone who could just do what they wanted to do and was just an idiot, but was so... He really rated himself and he really bet on himself all the time. And I was like, I
0: wish I could be like that. So after primary school, you moved up to Hatcham College. It's a former grammar school. Now, from what I've read, it seems like you've grown up in a household where you questioned everything So what were you like at school? What was I like? I said, what a question.
2: At school, immediately, I was put in all of the bottom sets in every single class. And because of that, I was bored. I was bored all the time. And so I asked questions, I challenged things all the time. And so my record said I had behavioural issues because I just asked a lot of questions. And because I was disruptive, because I was like, that doesn't make sense. So that doesn't make sense. Miss, that doesn't make sense. In maths, I got sent out every single lesson... And then in the end, I still got the highest mark in the class because I had to go and teach myself. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> school was a time. School was a time. At your
0: school, did they make you stand in the corridor?
2: I will go to the library. That would be my... F- I would think almost a lot of time I was like, I just want to go to the library because I don't want to... I'm also really bad at listening. And I'm obviously... like I excelled in drama studies or whatever it was because I could talk and I could move around and I could like engage that way. But if you're just talking to me, I'm my head is just like... A million things happening at once and I can't sit with it and listen to it. So I was almost like, let me go and do my own learning. So I go to the library.
0: My favourite bit of any school day was dreaming of what I could get from the canteen at midday and sit and eat with my friends. I think my thing was a buttered bread roll with a pile of chips and gravy. What do you look forward to? So me and my friend
2: Sophie... We used to bunk off at lunchtimes and it still feels like I'm only in trouble for saying that now. Like the teacher's going to come and be like, I knew it. But like we used to bunk off every lunchtime to go and get egg fried rice, which seems insane. Like if I had a child or my little sister was like, at lunchtime, i just going to get egg fried rice. I'd be like, just stay in the school. I don't really, I don't understand. But for us, it was like this really transgressive thing that was like, we're in charge of our own like culinary destiny. And we can just sit at the bus stop and have like an entire foil tray of egg fried rice with, with spring onion inside.
0: What is it about egg fried rice?
2: At the time, it must have been because it was cheap. I think it was like £1.10. Mm. I think it was also just the thing that we were doing for ourselves because we were both like the naughty ones. And so we would always be like, all right, fuck this, let's go and get an egg fried rice. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was our that was our thing. Like, let's not go and get a drink, maybe now. Let's go and get an egg fried rice, babe, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs>
0: Candice Carty-Williams, when you were 18, you moved from London to Brighton for your degree at the University of Sussex. And you'd come from a big family, everybody in and out of people's houses, always gossiping. And then you go to a campus by the seaside and suddenly you're living by yourself. So how do you start making friends?
2: Food. It was honestly food and it was also leaving my door open. So that was like the first thing. I moved in and I was like, because I'm quite a shy person. It didn't seem while well to be like, hello, I can trust you. But I remember just being like, but it's like eat or be eaten. Do you know what I mean? Like you got to just like jump in the pool. So I remember my room was on the corner. And so I would prop open my door without like my school tie. For some reason I brought my school tie. I'm a big nostalgia person, obviously. So I brought like every single thing with me. And then like, yeah, that would just be like the base for everyone to like hang out. And it was opposite the kitchen, so that helped. And then we did, we started
0: obviously in Come Dine With Me, which was like really, oh God, you know, it's like classic. Or Come Dine With Me, I always find when you do it amongst your friends, it starts off as a joke, but very, very quickly it gets very competitive.
2: Yeah, completely. Like, so I wouldn't do it now because I think I'd be quite like. I think things would turn quite nasty. So it's like, let's just keep it as though we we'll have a dinner party, and that's it. Nothing's at stake. But I would make vegetable lasagna because this was where I'd grown up in a house of like meat eaters that had never been questioned. But then uni was like, there was there were a lot of vegetarians, and I was like, oh right, interesting, okay. And then I really panicked. So I was like, how do I look after everyone? How do I look after myself and them? Um, And so recognising that people were just like, I'm away from home and I don't know who to talk to or like what to do. My parents aren't here. And just so people,
0: I don't like people being lonely. That's because you're (laughs) mum. Yeah, basically. That's you from when you were eight. So you're making a big vegetable lasagna to share? Exactly. So what goes into the actual sauce? You would buy
2: the sauce. It was a jar of sauce because at that point in my life I was like, So go back to my nan, she's very much like, you're not cooking, I'm cooking. So you just sit back and relax. And it's like sort of gun to your head, sit back and relax. And she likes to cook. Like, that's her way of being like, I'm looking after you, I'm nurturing you. And so, like, cooking was something that I think I was maybe starting at uni for myself. And that was, so I was just like, the components are like a jar of sauce, a jar of white sauce, some vegetables, sweet corn, courgette. And sweet corn was always something people were like, oh, sweet corn. And I was like, mm hmm, sweet
0: corn. You were doing a media studies degree. What kind of career were you dreaming of? I did media studies because I was told you're not going to get into
2: university if you try and apply to do English. And I remember being devastated because I was like, I love English, it's where I feel happiest. Like I can dissect stuff in media studies, that's cool. Like I can watch a film and be like, oh, I can see what happened there. But English was well. I remember doing Wuthering Heights and being like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever read. I mean, it sounds really silly, but like Heathcliff was like such an isolated character. And the way he was described, I remember feeling some sort of affinity to him and being like, he's described as like dark haired, dark skinned. And I'd be like, also all the stuff that I was reading and all the stuff that we were looking at, everyone was white. So I was like... Oh, this person who is not white, that's someone that I can feel a kinship to. He was different. He'd come from somewhere else. And he was also really not understood because of who he was. And I was like, I know what that's like. And just knowing that, yeah, I wanted to to write and create. And I wanted to tell stories. I think that's where I kind of like found myself.
0: After uni, you worked in journalism for a while, including at The Guardian. And after that, you made the switch to publishing in 2016. You decided to give writing a proper go and you were selected from among hundreds of applicants to take part in a writing retreat being offered by the novelist Jojo Moyes. Yeah. At a home in Suffolk. And in that week, you wrote 40,000 words... And that would become the first draft of Queenie. Yeah. What was it about being there that suddenly dragged that out of you? I mean, that's the dream.
2: I mean, amazingly, the first day she got there, she wasn't there. Her husband let me in. Her husband met me outside the house. He was holding a loaf of freshly baked bread. And I was like, okay, this is... Is, is this is the countryside because like I wasn't a countryside person at all, and so I got there and I was like, "Hello, I'm Candice." And he's like, "No, I know." And then I was like, "What's that bread for?" And he was like, "It's for you." And I was like, "Why?" Because I just didn't. I think just understanding like niceness and kindness, it always feels and felt like something I had to be like working for. You had to like I haven't like my family and my family, but it always felt like it was a sort of a bit like transactional. So when this man was over with this loaf of bread and it was for me, I was like, I don't know what to do. And I brought, like, whatever food I'd had in my flat, in my tiny little horrible pseudo flat in Streatham. And I went in the, in the little kitchen of the cottage and I, he was like, yeah, just have a look. And if there's anything you don't like... And then he, he was saying things like, if there's stuff you don't like, tell us and
0: we'll replace it. And I was like... Do you think all this beautiful, luxurious food, or all this plenty... Do you think that powered you on to write? Do you think you thought, I'd quite like this lifestyle? No,
2: because I was terrified. Wow. I was literally terrified. I was so scared. And what powered me on was me being like, you do not deserve to be here. You are so lucky. And they're going to come in any second and be like, actually, you need to go home. And so I was like, write as much as you can, as quickly as you can, because this bubble's going to burst. And they're going to be like, actually, we don't know why you're here. Get out. I think I got there on like maybe the Monday met Jojo on the Tuesday and she had a, we had a chat and it was like you know she was really she was really emotional we both like crying and she was like I just have to do the right thing like why would I have this and not like help anyone who needs it and I was like well lots of people don't do that and so I sat down with like her family like her husband and her kids and then we all ate and just chatted but yeah I remember, and that was I think the after like five days of being there that was when I was like oh yeah they're not going to send you home the whole setup of just being in this place and like being catered for and looked after it was really overwhelming
0: Queenie was published in 2019. You had four different publishers fighting to get it. And then once the book's out, it becomes an instant bestseller. It won the 2020 Book of the Year prize at the British Book Awards. So, what did you eat to celebrate once you found out?
2: I think it's quite good for me that I found out the year that we had to everything in the house, because if I'd been at that ceremony, my name was called i wouldn't have been able to get up on that stage i would have been too scared and so i think it's good that i was like told over zoom and then obviously it was lockdown so i "I haven't got anything anything in really uh so i just had some salmon and some rice and then a turmeric
0: tea and i watched karate kid (laughs) so if you'd have won that prize in person you don't Actually, think you'd have been able to go and stand on stage and give your speech. No, but if I told you that I was not going to get on that stage for that type of big prize, as mum, as big mum energy, what would you say to me? I would like, yes, you are. <laughs> oh, you absolutely are. You absolutely are. Why does Queenie resonate with so many people? I think
2: because the experiences are so universal, and I think that's case. It's the case because I listen. I spend all my time listening to people. I really care about people's experiences. I really care. And I think, you know, there are good people who have bad things happen to them and bad people who get really, you know, have, really, have a really good time. Um, and I think I'm so obsessed with what people's stories are in that and I don't think it, I mean obviously there are some really really bad people but I also think that people that have, you know they've had a bad run of it and they're trying to figure things out I think that I try to be as impartial as possible because I just care and I think as much as that can come out in my writing like I can be happy knowing that people resonate with that because I got a lot of stick especially from Americans about the way that Queenie was um, she's messy she's a slut she's a whore she's disgusting And I was like, yeah, but she's human, do you know what I mean? And I think that's the thing. I think I just, I know that everyone is human and people make mistakes
0: and I try to to capture that. There's always a part when you write in any book when the publisher reminds you that you need to dedicate it to somebody and it's a really personal thing. I mean, when I've had to do it, I always go right round the houses and I don't do it until the last minute (laughs)
2: yeah
0: and you dedicated Queenie to two friends to Dan and to Anton who you met during your time in Brighton tell me some of the favorite memories about these people that led to them being you know right bang at the beginning of one of the most important things in your life so Dan and Anton were two of my very best friends. They're
2: amazing, amazing, amazing men. Anton and I met first, and we got on well because I think we were the two people of colour. So we just were like, let's talk about our experience. Cause this is really alienating and quite strange. And he was just, I think, part of the best experiences that I had there because he was so funny. And I remember going to lots of gay clubs with him in Brighton. Just it was, I remember just always the Saturdays, just always being on and wearing the most extreme stuff from American apparel, because like that was the time that that was the thing that you wore. And then Dan, I met he was a friend of a friend. I was just really drawn to him. I just wanted to spend time with him and talk to him all the time. And when I wasn't very well, I left university and then had panic attacks all the time. And this went on for, I think, two and a half years. And that's why I wanted to write about mental health in Queenie because I was like, this happens. And no one told me it was going to happen. I would leave university and be like... Lost in the world, not know where to go. But he was really amazing. And one of the things that he said to me was, write about what you're going through, but instead of writing it like your own diary, why don't you write it through someone else, like through someone else, write those experience through someone else so you're not so close to it. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And I did that for a bit. And then I, I just got better eventually. And so I didn't need to do it as much. And then when it came to writing Queenie, I was like, what you want to write about? Write about the stuff that you know, that you see, that you hear, but write it all through someone else's lens, like fictionalise it and take it away from yourself. And so, yeah, it just felt right that those two people who were so formative in my early 20s. And the hardest thing, I think, you know, it's hard when you miss someone, it's hard in the down moments, but it's also when really great things happen and there's some people that I want to tell. So Dan and Anton
0: both passed away? They
2: both passed away. Dan first. Dan had cancer. And so we knew it was coming. And I remember the, the last time he went to hospital, I remember feeling that like this is going to be the last time. And then his sister let me know. And I was just like, ooh. I don't think I've ever really recovered. But you don't because it's grief and it just does its own thing. How old was he? He was 26. He was 26. Um, I remember he could always laugh about things. I remember him saying to me, like, Kenny's... My family are fucking Irish, and this is a type of cancer found in Nigerian men over 40. Like, how unlucky can you get? And I was like, babe, I haven't got an answer. Um, and then less than a month later, Anton had been travelling, and I got a call saying that he'd had a, a, a seizure, and he'd passed away. And I was like... Right, okay. You know, that way your brain is just kind of like, let me try and make logic of it. And then I was, just, I think I was just walking down the street, I was going to my friend's house, and I just started wailing. And I turned up at their house, and I was just like on the floor. And they didn't know what to do, because they knew him too. And it was, it was really hard.
0: And then every time somebody walks into a bookshop, though, their names are there in the front of the book. Yeah, I wanted to make sure they were honoured in some way,
2: because they were so young, you know, six. They'd be so proud of what's happened, though. Yeah, they and they would. They were good people who would be there, and I know that they would be at the parties and the launches and the and Dan the being cynical and Anton dancing. Like I know that that's how they would be.
0: In the last few years, you've been busy working on several TV projects and writing your next novel, which is called People Person. And see, now I've started speaking to you today. I know why it's called People Person. Do you? I feel like it's about somebody being very intuitive. Yeah. When you sit down to write, who do you imagine reading your words? And what is it that you want them to feel? It's funny, when I wrote Queenie, I
2: just imagined myself reading it because I was like, what would you need if you were in your mid-twenties? Which I was. So I basically wrote the thing that I was like this is going to be your companion. Like Dan had said, write about the things that are happening around you, but don't write it as you. Um, And I think with this one, it's hard, isn't it? Because it's like, now I know the the number of people who might buy it. So I'm like, oh God, how am I going to please everyone? Um, But I don't know. I try not to think about anyone. I just think I try to get to the heart of the thing I'm talking about. And if you resonate with it, Then you do. I want to talk to as many people as possible through that rather than through, like, this is going to be for you because you've gone through this situation. It's more like, how do you feel when you understand this person is going through something? Or, like, have you gone through that too?
0: Basically, you want to take your big mum energy to the whole world.
2: Honestly, like, every day. It is. It's so... Present because I just want to make sure everyone's looked after.
0: It sounds almost as if, with your writing, what you want to do is provide people with the um, kind of lovely source of comfort your buttery crumpet gave me. They're very nice. I love that. I love how you brought it back around. Oh man, it's gone really. It's gone really cold. You can't eat them an hour later, can you? Oh no, yeah, you can't. Can you? I mean. It felt actually like a sanitary pad there. And it's like a whole new texture. <laughs> We'd never get that signed off by health and safety. No, no, not at all. Candice Carty-Williams, thank you for comfort eating with me today. It's my pleasure. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Hannah Moore. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Cathy Drysdale. Sound design is by Sammy L. Anani. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. You can subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. This is The Guardian.